Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. We're picking up this morning uh, in 1 Corinthians in our series, Letters to RDU. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and begin to turn to 1 Corinthians. As you do, um, when I thought about this morning, Pastor uh, Scott left off last week in chapter 9. We're going to begin in chapter 10. And as I've been reading through the letter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, um, I, I started thinking these guys are a little overwhelmed at this point. We've been breaking up this letter over the course of weeks, but as the church sat and read this letter from Paul, they, they, they just sort of sat and they took it all in. And, and if you were to stop and think about everything that we've covered over the last several weeks, it's, it's daunting, isn't it? Okay, again, in the cheap seats, it's kind of daunting, isn't it? All right, good job, guys. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Yes. Any parents in the room? You have felt overwhelmed. We welcome Drake and Haley and precious new Evelyn. And so somewhere… Somewhere in the midst of our tech this morning, you may randomly see these cute baby pictures sliding in from Drake. Um, they are learning what it is to be overwhelmed as a new parent. And whether it's a job, whether it's a project, whether it's a hobby, whether it's just parenting, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, there are times in our life that we just feel overwhelmed. And, and when I'm stopping and looking at Paul's letter, I'm thinking, these guys are overwhelmed. Uh, I jotted down a few things. Can I just give you some quick summary? These are some of the things that Paul's already told these, these, this church in Corinth. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, we're called to be saints together. He goes on to say that we're sanctified, literally is set apart. In verse 30, still back in chapter 1, he says that we are all in Christ. In other words, we have this new identity in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 15, down into chapter 3, that we're no longer to be uh, spiritual infants, but we're to grow towards spiritual maturity. Chapter 3, verse 16, he says that we are God's temple. Our body is literally God's temple. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he uses the word, we're to be servants, we're to be stewards, we're to be found faithful. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says we are to be imitators of Christ and imitators of Paul. Chapter 6, he says that all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He says we're not to be dominated by anything. Chapter 6, verse 20, he says we are to glorify God with our body. Are you starting to feel a little overwhelmed already? How am I going to do all this stuff? Chapter 7, verse 15, we're called to peace. Chapter 17, uh, 7, 17 through 24, multiple times he uses the word again, called. We've been called to a specific purpose. Chapter 7, verse 32, that we're to be free from anxieties. <laughs> yeah, not an easy task, right? Are you kidding me? All the stuff you're giving me, that brings enough anxiety. Chapter 8, we're not to abuse our freedom and sin against our brothers. No easy task. Chapter 9, we're to surrender our rights for the passion of the gospel. This is a huge task. And so I'm sure at this point they're just sort of going, man, this is overwhelming. This is somewhat daunting. I could almost hear the Corinthian church going, come on, Paul, seriously. I mean, we're not Jesus. Matter of fact, we're not even you. 
How are we supposed to do all this stuff? And so I, when I'm looking at this text, I kind of come to this place here in chapter 10 as Paul is writing. He's coming right off chapter 9. Pastor Scott, last week in verse 24, he says, we're to run the race so that we may obtain the prize. In verse 25, he says that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And, and then the verse right before we start today in chapter 9, verse 27, he says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. So as we begin in chapter 10, verse 1, what I see over these next 22 verses is almost a little reprieve. Paul is almost saying, okay, I know that I've overwhelmed you with a lot of task, a lot of duty, a lot of expectation of what God wants and expects from us as followers of Jesus. So I want to give you some practical application. That if you're going to do these things, if you're going to strive as an athlete to win the prize, if you're going to run in such a way that you obtain the prize, if you're going to discipline your body so that you can live a spiritually disciplined Christian life, he says, I'm going to show you how to do that. And so he gives us some practical points. And so I'm going to tell you right up front, you have a mission this morning. And your mission, and it's going to be different for every single person in this room, but every single one of us need to answer this question. What is my next step? What is my next step in my walk and my relationship with Jesus Christ? As I learn to discipline myself, to run in such a way as to obtain the prize, to discipline myself as a spiritual athlete, every one of us have to answer this question. What is my next step spiritually? And it will be different for every one of us, but every one of us have a next step. Say it with me. I have a next step. And this morning, I will find it. Okay, half of you have said you will find it. The other half, we're going to pray for you over the next few minutes, and you will find it as well. There's four things in this text that I see that Paul begins to share. He says, if I'm going to discipline my body to keep it under control, if I'm going to discipline myself to grow into spiritual maturity in Christ, I look at this text and there's four things that I see. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul simply says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, brothers identifying them as part of the family of Jesus Christ, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, first thing I want you to see in these first five verses, in Bible study technique, sometimes what you do is you look for things that are repeated, you look for things that are emphasized. So as you study God's Word, look for things that are repeated, look for things that are emphasized. I want you to look for the things that are repeated and emphasized in these first four verses. Because what Paul is doing is he's given us a little bit of a history lesson He's going to take us back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, and he's going to give us a history lesson and say, what can I learn from those that have gone before me? So look at it. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all, there it is once, under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all are the, ate the same spiritual fruit, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank the spiritual rock that flowed from them. The rock was Jesus Christ. Get this. He's reminding them of the children of Israel when they left Egypt and how God was so gracious to provide for all of their needs. You remember the story. They left Egypt and, and God just began to provide for their needs. And he was meeting their needs over and over. And he was feeding them and he was giving them drink. And he was with them with a cloud of fire and a cloud uh, you know, through the day and a cloud by night this pillar of fire. 
He was there. He was their provider. So the first four verses are about God's provision. God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and he did it for all of you. But then he lays the hammer down in verse 5. Look what he says. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. If you and I are going to discipline ourselves spiritually to run the race that Jesus has called us to run, first, we need to seek his pleasure over his provision. As you and I live the Christian life, we need to seek God's pleasure over his provision. See, we live in a culture that simply wants to meet their own needs. We're consumed with our own needs. We're driven with our own needs, even in church life. And so, as Paul is reminding the children of Israel. He's summarizing Exodus 13, Exodus 14, Exodus 16. He's reminding them that your ancestors before you were graciously provided by God when they didn't deserve it, and they didn't have to work for it. God simply met their needs. How many times do we seek God's provision? We want all the stuff from God, but we're not concerned with pleasing God. It's like being a parent. We provide for the needs of our children. They don't always please us with their behavior. They don't always please us with their love and their affection. But what do we do? We continue to provide. We continue to provide. You know, God does the exact same thing with his children. And out of our selfishness and our own desires, sometimes we're simply seeking the hand of God and the bounty of God without seeking the heart of God. And Paul is saying, if you're going to run... If you're going to discipline yourself to run the race that God has called you to run first, you need to seek his pleasure over his provision. God is faithful in his love for all of mankind. And in his faithfulness to love them, he's going to meet needs. He's going to care for us, listen, even when we don't deserve it. Anyone ever felt the hand of God providing for you? Grace, hope, stuff, whatever it may be, and in your heart you're going, God, I don't deserve this, but you're still faithful to do it for me anyway. I like the way R.C. Sproul puts it when he speaks of culture because he simply says, natural man's sin is precisely this. He wants the benefits of God without God himself. See, Paul dealt with the natural man in chapter 2 going into chapter 3. He said, I can't speak to you as spiritual, but as worldly. It means carnal. See, God doesn't want us to be carnal. He doesn't want us to be natural or separated from him. He wants us to be in spirit with him, to seek his pleasure, to seek the heart of God. But see, we live in a culture that wants the stuff of God without seeking the heart of God. We've got this distorted idea of what it means to be blessed by God. Oh, God blessed me because he did this for me. Oh, God blessed me because he gave me this. Oh, God blessed me because I got this great new car. Oh, God blessed me because I got this promotion. No, we've distorted what it means to be blessed by God. Listen to me very clearly. I want you to clearly, clearly understand this phrase. The greatest blessing that God offers us is not stuff. The greatest blessing that God offers us is the gospel. The gospel is simply this, that because of his love for us, 
He made it possible to be saved from the punishment of our sin through the willing, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cruel cross. That's blessed. It's not about our stuff. It's about the gospel, what God has done for us. And until we begin to seek the heart of God and his, his pleasure more than simply his provision, we're really not running in such a way as to get the prize. And so Paul says from a practical perspective, he says, listen, I want you to just seek the pleasure of God over the provision of God. So after each point this morning, I'm going to challenge you with a couple of questions. Here's your first question. Have you truly come to that place in your life that you've repented of your sin and you've turned your life over to Jesus Christ? See, that's the beginning step to seeking his pleasure over his provision. Are you seeking the hand of God and all the bounty of God or are you truly seeking the heart of God? Are you seeking the hand and his provision more than you're seeking his heart and his pleasure? Second, Not only do we have to seek his pleasure over his provision, and I want to make these very personal this morning, I need to seek his instruction over my sin. I need to seek his instruction over my sin. Let's pick it up in verse 6. And again, I want you to just kind of look at the things that are repeated or the things that are emphasized, beginning in verse 6. Now these things, what? Things that he had just mentioned in verses 1 through 4. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, again, as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as what? As an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore, and again, every time in Bible study when you see the word therefore, you stop and ask what it's there for. In other words, because of what I just said, Because of these past examples, therefore, he says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, we need to seek the instruction of God over my sin. I need to look to God's word as as to how am I supposed to deal with the sin that is so natural and so um, prolific in my life. I need to seek his instruction. These things happen as an example. What things? There's five things that he lists here, very specific things. Five times he says, as they did, or as some of them did. What did he talk about? He talked about they craved evil things. That's an attitude of the heart. They didn't crave God, right? They weren't seeking his pleasure. They were seeking his provision. And so it begins with an attitude of the heart. They craved evil things. And, And literally, it's almost like Paul has given us this slippery slope. First, we begin to crave evil things, verse 6, verse 7. Then they began to engage in idolatry. In other words, God's not enough. God's meeting all their needs in the wilderness. He's guiding them through the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud by day. He's giving them food. He's giving them drink. It's not enough. The great I am has just delivered them from slavery. It's not enough. What did they do? They formed a golden calf. 
So evil was in their heart and began a slippery slope. They engaged in idolatry. Verse 8, they became immoral. In other words, their idolatry then led to drunken orgies and everything else that was taking place. It just began this downward slide. Verse 9, they tested the Lord's faithfulness, questioning God's faithfulness and providing for them. Verse 10, then they began to grumble against their leaders. In other words, what's happening is God you know what, my life's just not going the way that I think it should. My attitude or my circumstances, God, I'm disgruntled with you, therefore you must not be God. <laughs> I will say it very clearly, my attitude or circumstances do not change the nature and character of God. Things may not be going your way, it doesn't change who God is. Well, God, but I want this, or God, I really wanted that, or God, I sure would like this, and, and we don't get it, and so all of a sudden, God's not good. <laughs> God is good whether I think so or not. God is good whether things are going my way or not. God is good regardless of the situation, and my circumstances and my attitude don't change a single thing. Let me jump back to R.C. Sproul. I love what he said. He said, one of the most dangerous things that you and I can do as Christians is determine your theology by your experience. <laughs> See, theology is, is great. Theology is simply right thinking about who God is. How do we understand that? How do we get a right theology? How do we properly understand who God is? We go to his word. We seek instruction over our sin. We begin to spend time in God's Word. He, he says here in verse 11, these things were written down, what? For our instruction. See, the purpose of God's Word is, is not simply information, it's transformation. The problem is some, some of us have sat in church for a long time and we're gaining more and more information. But that information has never moved from our head to our heart. It's a difference about 12 to 18 inches. The information, if it's simply stored in our head, we've already discovered knowledge puffs up, love edifies. See, the love of God through the instruction of his word is transformative. If we're simply gathering information in our head, that's not a right understanding of God. It's a right understanding of information. So when I have to go to God's Word, and I have to look, and I love the way Pastor Scott said the, about two weeks ago, he said, I have to take the Word of God, and I have to lay it out, and I have to take my life, and I have to lay it out next to that, and I have to see how they match up. And if my life is not matching up with God's Word, what needs to change? My life. I can't change God's Word to fit my lifestyle. I have to look at his word, and so I have to seek his instruction over my own sin. This is a process, right? Not just of information, but transformation. It's the process of discipleship, which is becoming more and more like Christ. Paul has already told the church in Corinth that they're sanctified. Sanctified is such a cool word because it literally means I am set apart for God's exclusive use. I'm set apart for God's exclusive use. When I've been chosen by God and redeemed by God, I become a child of God. He sets me apart for his exclusive use. I'm not to be used by anyone else or anything else. I'm not to be driven by anything else. Therefore, I have to look at the instruction of his word, and that has to be my destination. See, discipleship is a destination. Spiritual growth and maturity is a destination. 
relationships, Jesus taught us, are the vehicle by which we move to that process. That's why at Southbridge Fellowship, we are huge on small group ministry. You see, you're sitting in this place, and you're sitting around a bunch of people, and you go, I don't know these people. That's okay. I've said it over and over. No one has to know everybody, but everybody's got to know somebody. Who do you know in this place? You see, Paul is saying we go into strict training. I've never known anyone who gets serious about training who doesn't grab a buddy to train with. A running buddy, a gym buddy. Someone that's going to hold you accountable to help you grow, to say, come on, wimp, push it. Five more, five more. Why? You invite them into your life because you want them to push you because you are looking for life change. That's exactly what small group ministry does. This is not discipleship. We don't disciple from the pulpit. We disciple in the context of small group relationship. You got to get connected. We can't do it for you. We can invite you into the journey, but we can't do that for you. And perhaps your next step this morning is simply to find somebody and go, that's my next step. I need people in my life that are going to instruct me They're going to point me back to the truth of God's word. We're going to go on this journey towards spiritual maturity and discipleship. Relationship is the vehicle by which we're going to get there. So that you can honestly look and say, hey, in a month, in six months, in a year, in five years, my life has been transformed, not through relationships, but through the instruction of God's word, because that's what we do in the context of relationships. That is the process of our small group ministry. If you're not connected, I want to help you get connected. Bible studies are great. They're informational that begin to help lead toward transformation. But it's in the context of ongoing relationship. People walking through the journey of life with us. Not just for the purpose of, oh, hey, man, we're we're Christians and we like to hang out together. If that's all you're doing is hanging out together, you're, you're not fulfilling the purpose to which God has called us. We got to go to his word. We have to seek instruction over our sin. This word uh, in verse 12, look what he says. This word, he says, therefore, take heed. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That is a really cool word. It literally means to to look at something. And what is Paul saying we need to look at? We need to look at our life. Therefore, because of all these things, all this slippery slope of sin, therefore, Dave, take heed. Therefore, Dave, look at something. Therefore, Dave, look at your own life and see how it matches up with the instruction of God's word. And Dave, where your life fails in sin, then you need to conform to the image of the instruction of God's word. But I want to be really careful because being an athlete in in the spiritual journey is not about trying harder. It's about training harder. Can I just encourage you this morning to give up, to quit? See, so many times in church life, it's like, man, I tried and I tried and I tried, and it's just kind of not working out for me. Can I just tell you to quit, give up, cease striving? Because living the effective Christian life is not about trying harder, it's about training harder. That's the instruction that Paul gives us, take heed. So my question then in this section is, how's your personal time with God and his word? Have you picked up your Bible since last Sunday morning? If not, there's a problem. How is your time in God's word? 
Let me ask you a question, and some of you are going to go, ooh, that's kind of real. Which is easier to put down for you in your life, your phone or your Bible? Yeah, see, I knew I'd get one out of that. Man, we are addicted to our little screens. There's a reason I love to carry my Bible, and this is actually just 1 Corinthians. It's a little journal Bible. It's awesome. It's fun to just work through a passage of Scripture, and it's all right there. But I love my Bible. I've got one that's tattered and torn, and it's got gaff tape all over it, and I love it because it's, it's been a part of my life. And yeah, I know you can get it on your phone, but I don't want it on my phone. I want the Word of God. Because on my phone, it's going to get notifications and all this other stuff. So you know what? I love to separate myself from this little glowy, addictive screen, and I just love to spend time with God and His Word. What about you? Which is easier for you to put down, your phone or the Word of God? First thing in the morning, what do you grab in the morning? Do you grab your coffee and the Word of God and say, God, I just want to spend time with you this morning to begin to set my path straight? Or do you grab your phone and go, man, I wonder how many Facebook likes I got, or I wonder what's happening here? Which of those is most pleasing to God? What was the last verse that you specifically committed to memory? As you're studying God's Word and, and you simply said, that is an incredible passage of Scripture, and I'm going to commit that to memory. Why? Because the psalm says, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What was the last verse that you studied, that you came across, and you said, I'm going to commit that to memory? See, those are great indicators as to whether or not you're seeking his instruction over your sin. Third, I want you to see that we need to seek his strength. I need to seek his strength over my own. See, verse 12, take heed lest you fall, <clears throat> raised another question in the Corinthian church. And it probably raises a question with us, the exact same question. Well, what if I am tempted so great that I can't resist sin? I mean, sin is real, isn't it? There's a reason that sin is, is dangerous because it's fun. Satan knows how to tempt. He knows how to draw me away from the presence of God. Sin is real. Sin is fun. <clears throat> sin is addicting. It, it is just an addiction process. And it becomes a very slippery slope. And so the Corinthians were going, look, Paul, I mean, what, what if the sin is just so strong that I can't resist? So he addresses that. Our third point is simply this, right? We need to seek his strength over my sin. One simple verse. I love this verse. Probably many of you have looked at this verse and you know this verse. This is what it says. No temptation. The word temptation is, is, can also be translated test. It could be a challenge of the integrity of our moral character. It could also appeal to our sinful tendencies and our everyday snares of sin, which I think is very fitting in the context, right? A test, a trial. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. It could be mental. It could be emotional. All the things that Satan is going to use to distract us from growing in spiritual maturity and training right with Christ, he's going to throw something at us to pull us away, to distract us a test, a trial, a temptation. And so he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation. He will also provide the way to escape that you may be able to bear uh, or to be able to endure it. You see, we live with this myth in our culture, and it's sort of infiltrated the church too, that, hey, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. Have you heard that? It's a lie. 
Of course he is. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse isn't saying, oh, Dave, you know, look, God's going to take it real easy on you, man. And and you're going to come to Jesus and you're going to live your best life now. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus said, look, they hated me. They're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. Matter of fact, Pastor Scott talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If you're not experiencing persecution, you're probably not living an effective Christian life. How are you being persecuted for your faith? How are you being persecuted, ridiculed, tested beyond your personal ability to lean in close to Christ? So I look at this verse, and there's five very key phrases when you just simply look at the, at the verse all by itself. I have them circled and highlighted in purple in, in my Bible. But look what he says, no temptation has taken you, but what is common to man. That's your first phrase, it's common to man. In other words, there's nothing you're going to deal with that other people who are human beings haven't dealt with. Oh yeah, but, but I was really tempted heavy. Oh really? No one else has ever been tempted. Oh yeah, but Dave, this is like really serious, you know. Listen, nothing's going to happen in your life that's not common to man, that's common to humanity. So it's common to all of us, but I love this key phrase right in the middle. I circled it. It says, God is faithful. Hang on to that. See, no matter what the temptation, no matter what the test, no matter what the trial, no matter what the struggle in your life, God is faithful. This is a bookend right in the middle to chapter 1, verse 9. Because as Paul began this letter to the church in Corinth, look what he told them in verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful, therefore I'm going to dump all this heavy stuff on you and it's overwhelming. But listen, God is faithful. Sometimes we just need to know that. Sometimes you and I need people in our life to just go, look, I I know it's tough and I'm not here to fix it. I just want you to know that God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond. That's the key phrase, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also, here you go, provide the way. That's the other key phrase of escape that you may be able to, in the last phrase, endure it. Your translation might be stand up under it. I looked at this phrase and I thought, how do I best describe this? Because for years, I, I, I look at this verse and, and the way I summarize this verse is this way. God knows my capacity. God knows my capacity better than I know my capacity. When I was a kid, my dad used to use this phrase. It's, he said, it's like sticking two pounds of bologna in a one pound bag. And that's always stuck with me. And I thought of this verse and I thought, man, it's much like sticking two pounds of bologna in a one pound bag. How do I take on more than I can bear? Well, it's because God is faithful. You see, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the promise of Scripture is that God takes and He deposits the Holy Spirit of God in us. And so what I think I can bear in my flesh is not what God can bear in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. My capacity changes. So when we go, hey, you know, but I, I can't bear this. You're right. I, in my flesh, I can't deal with this. But because of the power of Christ in me, what does Paul say elsewhere, right? In my weakness, he is made strong. So I wanted to give you a, a word picture. I'm all about pictures and illustrations. 
So I, I would say God understands my capacity better than I do. So I would say if this is my life and this is a trial and a struggle, which is greater, the capacity in me or Christ in me? And so I would say, well, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour a little bit in here. And, well, can I handle more than that? I don't think so. But Christ says, no, no, I, I think we can do a little bit more. And I go, God, that's really enough because I can't bear this any longer. And he goes, no, I think maybe we just do a little bit more. I go, God, that's enough. And he goes, no, just a little bit more. No, 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 God, that's really enough. He says, no, how about just a little bit more? Because I'm going to provide a way to escape, and you're going to handle it. And I go, God, it's impossible. I can't deal with any more. And God's going to go, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just give you a little bit more because through my strength, I'm going to teach you to bear up under it in a way that you can't understand. So there's a picture of capacity that God says, I know your capacity greater than you know your capacity. And see, the amazing process then is God says, I'm going to empty you of yourself so that I can do more. God knows your capacity. He's never going to give you more than he can handle through his strength in you, but he'll turn around and he'll empty us of ourself so that we begin to understand that there's more yet to come. Right? There's your picture. Hang on to it. So God's going, look, you need to say, you need to seek. All right, I totally lost all of you this morning, didn't I? All right, that's a word picture. That's all it is. It's like, look, we're going to God's word, and I want you to live with this picture that his capacity in you is greater than your own capacity. I love what John Piper said about struggles and adversities and trials and temptations. Look, look, you can see the quote. He said, there's a kind of intimacy with the Lord Jesus that only those know who hold fast to him in the midst of sorrow, pain, and loss. You see, it's those difficulties. It's the struggle that God says, I'm going to keep pouring into you, and I know you can't handle it, but there's a type of intimacy that I'm going to develop in you that you're only going to know when you and I go through this together. God loves you, and he knows your capacity, and he's pushing you to a limit. Why? So that you lean into him to seek his pleasure over his provision. You're leaning into him seeking his instruction over your sin. You're leaning into him for his strength over your own strength. So here's my question on this section. Do you see your difficulties as God's punishment or turning his back or as opportunities to lean into him for strength, for wisdom, for ministry, and for growth? <laughs> Lastly, I need to seek his identity over my idolatry. I need to seek his identity. See, my identity is in Jesus Christ over my idolatry. Beginning in verse 14, Paul continues, and again, he uses this word, therefore. In other words, because of what I just said, therefore, right? My beloved, I love that. Can I just hang on that word for just a second? In verse 1, he used the word brothers, identifying them as children of God. This word beloved in the Greek is, is, a, is a word of intimacy. It, it ties together an identity 
that we are in this together. It's, it's sort of a word of association and identity. Paul is saying, you are my beloved. We're in this together. Uh, we're, we're associated with one another. We're tied together. And he's already kind of talked about the, the baptism. And so here he dives into the Lord's Supper just a little bit. And, and he's talking about how we find our identity together. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This was huge in the city of Corinth. So verse 15, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing that we bless is not a... Now again, look for words that are emphasized and repeated. The cup of the blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink, get this, you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is creating this picture of oil and water. <laughs> He's going, look, you can't have a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom. You've identified yourself as part of the body of Jesus Christ. Symbols of that are baptism and Lord's Supper. We, we identify with the body of Christ. We call ourselves children of God. When we do something, we affect the kingdom. As part of the body of Jesus Christ here at Southbridge, to, to be a member, we, we ask that you sign a covenant. Have you really stopped and read the covenant? What are we saying? We're saying we're in this together. What you do affects the body. What I do affects the body. What we do publicly and corporately affects one another, how we love and how we care and how we nurture and how we serve and how we disciple and how we minister to one another. But also when we leave this place, what we do affects the body. It affects the kingdom of God, our witness. Why? Because we've identified ourselves with the body. And see, when we leave and, and we begin to stick our foot in the world, he's going, look, oil and water don't mix. You can't play around in the, in the world and play around in the kingdom. Who are you identified with? Where is your identity found? Is your identity found in your job? Is it found in your family? Is it found in relationships? Is it found in achievements? Is it found in your social media likes? Oh, gosh, if only more people would like my picture of a cheeseburger, I would feel better about myself. I mean, I walked an eighth of a mile to get a picture of this pretty water. If only people would, would realize the journey that I took to get here and, and like this. I've only got three likes. Man, our identity is found in the things of the world. And Paul is saying, look, your identity is found in Jesus Christ. What is true about you, the truest thing about you, is what Jesus says about you. He says that you are called, that you are sanctified, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you've been identified with the body of Christ. You've been called to a different standard of living. Your identity is not found in this world. Your identity is not found in your relationships. I love my wife dearly. I love her more than any person on the face of the earth, and I don't show that well enough 
as her husband, and I'll just confess that. But my identity is not in being Leslie's husband. I love my kids. But my identity is not being an Amanda's dad or Christopher's dad or Matthew's dad. My identity is not found in being a staff member at Southbridge. That's my job. But my identity is found in Jesus Christ. I am secure in being a child of God that he created me uniquely with all my flaws for his honor and glory. And I'm still trying to figure all that out. Anybody else? Man, wait, you're trying to figure me out or you're trying to figure you out? I'm hoping you're trying to figure you out, right? Because your identity is in Christ. It's not in your job. Your job is what you do to live to honor Jesus Christ. But your identity is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is simply saying, look, as we've said several times already in this series, the problem in Corinth is the issue of their heart. They've got a heart problem. And like fire and water, Satan and Christ don't mix. God won't tolerate split loyalties. You come, you identify with the body of Christ, you step into another standard. That's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. As we identify, there's a great picture if you would just take fabric and dip it into dye and that dye comes out, right? That fabric comes out and it's taken on the properties and the color of the dye. See, when you and I are initiated, we're baptized, we're identifying ourselves with the body of Christ, guess what? Our life begins to take on the look of Jesus Christ. And people are looking at us and they're looking for something different. I'm a Chuck Swindoll fan. Anybody else? I love Chuck. He's got a little book called Day by Day. Listen to what he wrote. He said, when money is our objective for happiness, we must live in fear of losing it, which makes us paranoid and suspicious. When fame is our aim, we become competitive lest others upstage us, which makes us envious. When power and influence drive us, we become self-serving and strong-willed, which makes us arrogant. And when possessions become our God, we become materialistic, thinking enough is never enough, which makes us greedy. All these pursuits fly in the face of contentment and joy, speaking of our walk and our relationship with Christ. So my question is, what are you in love with or pursuing more than Jesus Christ? A relationship? A job? A career? A promotion? An accomplishment? Where does the majority of your time and your treasure and your devotion go? How are you advancing in your walk and your faith to look, act, live, and talk more like Jesus Christ? See, a lot of us dive into the Christian life and we're looking for simple salvation. We're looking for the things of God without true life transformation. And I was praying through this text just the other day. I remembered a, an old poem. It was a devotional. It was actually a book written by uh, a pastor named Wilbur Reese. He was born back in about 1929. He just died last year. And he wrote a very obscure little book called Three Dollars Worth of God. And it was a simple little devotional. The title of that book was one of the devotionals. And it simply said, uh, it was entitled Three Dollars Worth of God. Listen to this carefully. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. 
Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Sometimes that's how we approach God, isn't it? God, I want just enough of you to make me feel good about me. God, I want your provision without your pleasure. I want my idolatry, not your identity. I want my sin, not the instruction of your word. God, I'm going to do life in my own strength, not in your strength. So I'm going to close with this question. What's your next step? I want you to honestly answer that. What's your next step? Do you need to connect with people? Come see me. Go to the information table. Michelle will be out there. Find one of our leaders, one of our elders. Find a small group. There's a list out there. Email us. Call us. We want to help you connect. And the word connect, when we talk about connect, it simply means commit to relationship. So you can come and go for years and never commit to relationship. There's no growth in that process. We're better together. We're in this process together because we identify with one another. Maybe you're a child of God, but you, man, you got this phone addiction and, and you need to say, man, I need to commit to some time in the word. I want to encourage you, no matter what your next step, don't do it alone. You find somebody and say, this is my next step. Would you help me? Just encourage me. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Because I'm telling you what, you, you want to make a, a commitment to a next step this morning, tomorrow's a whole new day. And Satan's going to jump all over you with discouragement, and you just need someone to go, I want to encourage you. You made a commitment to spend time in God's Word, five minutes, seven minutes, ten minutes, every morning. Just begin. If you need a seven-minute quiet time starter, message me. I will send you an outline for a seven-minute quiet time starter. Start there. Start somewhere. Take your next step. What's your next step? If you're growing in Christ, you're mature in Christ, maybe you've known Christ, maybe you're studying his word, but I need to go deeper. I need to know how to go deeper. You let us know. We're going to help you do that. You're growing in Christ and God's prompting you, man, it's time for me to begin to invest in others. People have been pouring into my life for a long time. It's time for me to begin to pour into the life of others. Maybe that's your next step. Because you just sort of come to a, a place that your Christian journey is just sort of stalled. I don't know what your next step is. But I tell you right now, if you stop and ask Christ, God, what is my next step in, in drawing closer to you, to train harder to be the child of God you've called me to be, I promise you this, he's going to give it to you.